Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. You're the first one in, last one out, and you do whatever it takes to succeed. Nonetheless, 25 million Americans have chosen the entrepreneurial life because it's equal parts demanding and fulfilling. Welcome to the People First, Then Profit podcast. Join hospitality veteran, photographer, and entrepreneur Don Mamoni each week as he hosts a candid, no-holds-barred conversation with successful business owners and entrepreneurs eager to share their professional secrets with you. Like his crazy Italian family does on Sunday nights, he's serving up a healthy portion of inspiration, motivation, and education, so I hope you're hungry. Now, here's your host, Don Mamoni. All right, excellent. Everybody, welcome to the People First and Profit podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with Miss Jennifer Thornton. Jennifer is with 304 Coaching, and we're going to talk today about everything about communication, being right all the time, or feeling like you have to be right all the time, developing your team, all things organizational. So thank you for being here, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. You reached out to me, which was one of the single most humbling things I've ever experienced when it comes to my podcast. Somebody as professional and as upwardly mobile as you in the space of coaching and teaching to reach out to me and offer to be on my podcast was a real compliment. So thanks for that. Yeah. You know, I enjoy your work. And when I find people with great energy, I want to have more conversations with those types of people. And at the time I didn't know it, but found out you're somewhat a neighbor. We live in the same city. Which isn't always the case when you're talking about podcasts. My podcast a week or two ago, the interview was in Ireland. And so he reached out and we connected and he said, uh, yeah, I'd love to be on your show. And I said, I'd love to have you on my show. Why, where's the accent from? He's like, oh, I'm calling from, can't remember exactly where Limerick, I think it was in Ireland. I thought, wow, that's Talk about the global village, right? I know I am prior to going out on my own, having my own company, I ran an international team. And one of the things I try to do is reach out to, you know, podcasters around the world, because it's just fascinating how different countries sometimes think about how they view leadership and communication and different things like that. So it's, it's fun to, you know, know that the world can be very small. And in a world where we're celebrating whatever wins we can take in a space where we're brand new, it's pretty awesome that I get to say that my podcast is now international because I've interviewed somebody from Ireland. Before we get too far, I'd like to read your bio and I'd love for everybody to know a little bit more about your history, what brings you here today and what puts you in a place where you're coaching after running an international team. And then I'm going to ask you some questions. How's that sound? Perfect. Excellent. Jennifer has developed her experience in talent strategy and leadership professional development over her exciting 20 plus year career as an HR professional. She's led international teams across greater China, Mexico, the UK, and the US to expand into new markets, managing franchise retailers, and developing key strategic partnerships, all while exceeding business objectives and financial results. The rapid growth of her consulting firm, 304 Coaching, has been largely due to Jennifer's unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions for companies who are facing breakthrough growth and accelerated hiring patterns. She is a sought-after business strategist specializing in startups and large value-based organization. She assists her clients in building talent strategies that complement their business strategies to ensure exponential growth. She lives in Texas with her family and rescues. In her free time, she enjoys reading, historic preservation, remodeling her lake home and spending time with friends. Thank you for spending time with me, Jennifer. Well, thank you. That is an unbelievable resume bio talking about many countries, many cultures and companies that are on a trajectory to grow exponentially. What's that been like? 
gosh, it's been exciting, scary, fun, whatever other adjective I can think of. You know, when I left my job in corporate America, it was fantastic. I you know, was running an international team. It looked really cool on Instagram and Facebook, you know, cause I mean, amazing pictures from all over the world, but there was just something in me that I just, I just knew I had run my course. I had an incredible career with an organization for over 20 years. Amazing. It's just so amazing, but I just knew something else was waiting for me and kind of saw a little bit of a window and I jumped and took it and started my own business. And it's been fantastic. I can't complain a bit. My bad days are still pretty good days. You know, I just, I think that, you know, anytime as a solo, solo entrepreneur, you can wake up and pay your bills by doing what you love. It's a pretty good day. I tell you, so I've recently read a book and in that book, the author talks about how important it is to choose your problems. Because if you think you're going to leave corporate America and that, that you aren't going to have tough days, that's not true. You're all going to have tough days. You're always going to struggle. It's picking the problems that you want. And so I love that you're saying that, yeah, I mean, it's up and down, but that, that largely you're you're, all the lines are pointing in the right direction. They are. They're all pointing in the right direction. And even when I fail or mess up or, you know, don't, you know, don't get the client maybe I wanted, you know, it's just, and I did a lot of coaching myself when I started my business, but it, to me, it's just opening the space for what is right. And mm -hmm. I have to choose how I want to look at it. And we all do. If I looked at it, it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't get that client. You know, they must not have liked me. You know, if I created a story like that, you know, where would I mean, I'd be, you know, on the couch upset every day, sure. but instead I'm like, you know what, they would have been really cool to work with, but then now there's a space open for the client that really does need me. And I can't tell you how many times I've stayed in contact. And then that client came back around, you know, six months, a year later, and they actually were my client, but having that viewpoint that, you know, it's okay at that point, I think helps leave that space open for them in the future. It's so interesting to me because I find that through the course of these interviews and the more professionals that I meet that have either chosen or in sometimes in some ways been chosen for them to become an entrepreneur, to strike that bold new path, they really typically fall into a couple of categories, right? And you fall into the category that I love so much that you had a corporate career that was immensely successful. You had made your mark. You could could have continued on. It's just you were looking for that level of fulfillment that you knew you could no longer get. And so you took the jump off the cliff and you built the plane on the way down and here yep. you are flying and soaring. And so that's really encouraging to so many people that might be listening in right now is that if I'm either ready to make that leap or that leap, I was sort of pushed a little bit because of some sort of life change, that it's okay. You can build that plane on the way down and still soar. Absolutely. And you do that every day. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and they're like, how did you get your business off the ground? How did you do that? And it's because I got up every single day and I still do. And I go to my office, even if my calendar is empty, especially in the beginning, most days, my calendar was completely empty. Mm -hmm. And I went to work at the same time every day and I learned something new, or I made a connection on LinkedIn, or I researched something which gave me an idea. And that's what why I think I made it is because when my calendar was empty, I didn't go hang out at the pool and sun all day. I went to my office and I worked. Mm -hmm. And so my mind knew I was working. And so work came my way. It's remarkable because so often it's not about whether or not you succeed at what point. It's that you're willing to put in the hard work, fight the good fight, scratch and claw your way to the point at which you do become that success that you know you can be. It's just, you have to manage expectations and you have to be willing to put the work in because they say, you know, it's not which failure, it's making sure that that failure doesn't stop you 
and that you out survive it. So I'm so glad that you did. I want to ask you some questions if that's all right. Absolutely. Yes. So as a loud and proud relationship marketer, obviously my rally cry is people first and profit. And I believe fundamentally in the power of relationships. You often talk about a concept of somebody feeling addicted to being right. And that that has very specific implications when it comes to communication and relationships. Talk to me about your addicted to being right concept and what the impact of that is. So we actually can get physically addicted to being right, just like we can get addicted to sugar or alcohol or shopping, whatever Mm. our addiction of choice is, because we get a dopamine hit when we're right. So every time you're right, let's face it, it feels good. I'll be the first to admit, I like being right. It feels good. And we know about all addictions. When you get that dopamine hit, the next time you seek it out, you need more and more of it to get that same level of, you know, feel goods. Mm -hmm. And so when you're right early in your career and you have some early wins and you're rewarded because you're right, maybe not rewarded because you collaborated or, you know, leveraged experts, you got rewarded because you were right. Then it starts this spiral of, I got rewarded. I got a dopamine when I dopamine hit when I was right. So I need to be right some more and asking everyone to continue to be, to approve, you know, your thoughts and allow you to be right. And over time you get addicted to it. It's remarkable to think then that you must have to do something proactively to either be aware of it, or you have to have somebody intercede like an intervention, like any other addiction. What's your advice to somebody if they notice this pattern in themselves or in someone else? So most people don't notice it in themselves until you are so far down the path that the the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of change. And that's how most addiction works, right? We don't necessarily want to change until we don't have a choice anymore. And being right's the same way. And so if you're someone running, um, you know, your business, even if you're a solo entrepreneur and you are telling people what you want them to know, or if you are, you know, someone comes to you and they tell you something and you're like, no, that can't be true. Nope. That's not it. This is it. And not listening to them. Or at the end of the day, if you're not saying, oh my gosh, I learned 10 things today, or I asked, you know, this question and, or I met someone today and learned from them. Um, you know, if you're not doing any of that, then you're probably addicted to your own thoughts and being right. So would you say that the addiction to being right and maybe confirmation bias or echo chambers or those sort of things that we experience in, especially in social media, when you have this ether of content, do you think that those are like kissing cousins to say, are they, are they closely related? Yeah, I think they absolutely are. You know, when we get a like and when we get a comment on our post or someone agrees with our opinions, yeah, we get a dopamine hit. They're verifying that we are right. And let's face it, we don't like it on social media when someone tells us we're wrong because then we're not getting that dopamine hit. We actually get cortisol, which is a stress hormone because now we're stressed out because someone may not like us or someone may think different than us. And all of that starts to spiral. But yeah, we love we love being right whether that's social media, in the office, with our clients. We just love it. I want to distill that for the audience because really what we're talking about now is how rapidly either the intensity or the breadth of how often we feel right or wrong will have a huge impact on the way that we communicate, the way that we relate to people. And I would imagine that, again, the aggregate can make things even worse. So let's say you surround yourself in person or on social media with people that you consistently feel like you're 
right all the time. And then some one person tells you you're wrong. I'll bet you, you have a pretty big reaction. Like how could all these people be telling me I'm right? And now I'm suddenly wrong. It's that shock. So we're talking about not, oh, this is just something to keep an eye out for. This could be debilitating or it could really be crippling to our relationships and our communication. It's crippling to our relationships. And I've worked with some executives who were so far down the addiction road that they could not hear the truth about their business. And their business was spiraling out of control. And, you know, you know, if you are someone who says, man, my team, they never make decisions on their own. My team never comes to me with new ideas. My team, you know, and you're blaming your team for all your company problems, then you've trained them. You've taught them not to tell you the truth. You've taught them through your actions and your words that being truthful gets them in trouble. Mm. And so if you're addicted to your belief of your company and, you know, another leader or another, just any employee says, Hey, you know, look at this. I have a new way of doing this. Or, you know, I was doing some research and I see that our customers are trending this way and you don't stop and listen, even if you don't want, even if you don't feel like it's true, if you don't stop and listen then you're teaching people not to tell you the truth. Mm, they don't want to speak truth to power, as they say. And I, I wonder if there's a point at which as, as solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, people that serve clients largely, right? So they may not be working with a team. This would, of course, be the same in any communication pattern in any relationship. I wonder if there's a time when they struggle with I'm supposed to be the subject matter expert and I need to have a conversation with this person and make sure that they understand. I'll bet you this will serve them well to know the difference between I'm addicted to being right and I need to educate this person on my experience as to why this is the direction they should go or why this is the right choice to make. Would you agree with that? I would. You know, as a consultant entrepreneur, oftentimes you're getting paid to be right. You're getting paid to know that as an expert. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I think about working with an organization, you know, I do talent strategies. So there is a million different ways to create a talent strategy because it has to match the business strategy and everyone's business is unique. And so I have to really get curious and understand someone's business before I can bring in options to them. Mm. Because if I say, no, it doesn't matter. All companies, your size this way, that way, this is like a, you know, wash, rinse, rinse and repeat, use this and you'll be fine. That's not how it works. And so I think as an entrepreneur, you have to get incredibly curious about your client. And then you also have to be okay with options mm. and it takes more work. It takes more work to get curious. It takes more work to bring options. But when you do that, you build a better product for your client and you have a much better relationship with your client. There's two answers that I always hated when I was in an organization or even my wife and I. So my wife and I are obviously business partners and we engage in lots of conversations about how we do things. Or when I was on an association board, I always tell people that the answer that I hated was because it's the way it's always been done, right? And that that's just not a viable answer. You can follow it up with because that's the way it's always been done. And here are all the reasons that we should continue to do it that way. Otherwise, it's really not. So again, it takes work to dig deep to, to answer those kinds of questions. So that's obviously why you're probably a wildly successful entrepreneur and coach is because you have to care and you have to care about more than just the business. You have to dig yeah. deep and, and learn about those folks. So let's move on to one of the other things that we talked about a little bit. And that's once again, my rally and cry people first, then profit comes back to relationships and communications. I have a communications degree from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And it was always interesting to me how it was applicable to every walk of life, every walk of life, interpersonal, professional, organizational. What are we going to do with the future 
and how we choose to communicate. Because from my nerdy communication history, I know about sender receiver models and uh, nonverbal communication and, and transmission issues and all that stuff. And it seems like almost every day we are going through a litany of change. So in the digital age with virtual events and tons of Zooming, what does the future of workplace communication look like? Oh my gosh, let me get my crystal ball out. But <laughs> Tough question. It is a tough question, but I'm so glad you liked it because these are the kind of conversations we need to have because I always feel like the future can organically happen and it is what it is, whether you like it or not, or you have conversations and you create what you want and you create where you go. So I think really hard questions like predicting the future are important to have. And, you know, I think that I think we're going to see a little bit of a divide. And I think there is going to be kind of this fork in the road where people have the choice to go one way. And that way is maybe how we've communicated in the past, which is very more about command and control and do as I say, because we're in so much fear because the world is moving so fast. And when we're in fear, that's how we naturally lead because our brain actually closes down our prefrontal cortex because our primitive brain's in control. And so you can't be innovative as a leader when you are in fear. And so I think there's that path. And then I think there's going to be a sharp other path. And that sharp other path is going to really start to understand to be a leader in the future. You have to not be the expert. You have to be an expert at bringing great ideas in. You have to be an expert at deploying people. You have to be an expert at, you know, learning enough. And that's very different than how we've maybe led in the past. You know, I was the expert, so I got promoted in job B because I was the best person at it. Well, that's not how it works anymore, because if you were the best person at it two years ago, you're probably horrible today because it moved so fast. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to lead and communicate in a way that lets the people in the moment come out and lets everyone show their expertise. But that's going to be hard for people. And there's going to be people that won't be able to do that. And so that's why I think you'll start to see like a really hard split on types of environments. I like your crystal ball so much. <laughs> we'll meet in five years and see how it looks. We'll, we'll meet in five years and see how it looks because I feel like you've opened the door to many possible answers. But at the same time, you really pinpointed a couple of things that I'd like to distill. Number one, I hope you're right. I personally do not like a control model. And I've always said that I believe that there's a fundamental difference between a boss and a leader. And they're mutually exclusive in some cases, which is so frustrating, right? You have somebody that's a boss that is in control of your day-to-day -day operation and maybe the operation of the entire organization. And you recognize that they're a boss and not a leader. And fundamentally, the difference is I think that a boss believes that they're right and they know the direction and they push the people to go where they need to. But a leader is a person that brings together the best group and they seek counsel, seek advice. They may have to make the final decision, but that they're open to those things. And so I fundamentally hope that that is some of the future. And then my follow-up question to you is, do you think that will generationally be the case? Do you think that things will shift? Because it seems like between co-working space and fun, neat, interactive ways in which people are, are working and brainstorming and collaborating, do you think that that generation is going to move in that direction automatically? You know, I think one thing that actually that I think COVID brought us because, you know, it's been horrible and, you know, we all know that, but then you think, okay, well, what came out of this? I think what came out of it is there's a lot of people that from a generational standpoint, multiple generations, everyone's having to learn this new way of work together. And so 
for the first time, I don't feel like it's, well, you know, you've been in the workplace for 20 years, so you can't do Zoom or you can't communicate, you know, on a camera. And the, you know, person fresh out of school and their first job is like the whiz at this technology. I, I think that's disappeared a little bit because we all had to figure this out overnight. And I think it's a nice byproduct of, you know, helping us stay away from this thought of, you know, only certain generations can lead a certain way because we all had to figure it out no matter how old or young we were. I did a talk for many years called Typewriters to Tweets, and it was about the generation gap in business. And I felt like it was never wider than it was at that moment because you had people that were mainly the boomer generation. There weren't too many people from the greatest generation that were still in an office environment, but you had people that didn't have electricity and TVs and things like that in their home that are now expected to to kind of just jump on board with a ridiculous amount of technology. And I think that your point is so well made that it forced the younger generation to support the older generation or, or whatever, however you want to look at that, to make sure that everybody was included. It wasn't okay to just say, well, they're just, okay, boomer, as they say now, yeah. it's kind of the running joke, right? You can't mm-hmm. just cast them aside. So what a what a great thing. So let's talk then, since we're, we're talking about teams real quick, uh, teams can be one of the most rewarding, one of the best ways to operate. As a solopreneur, I love collaboration and I love to work with preferred partners because that allows me to feed that wolf. It's also one of the more difficult, scary places to be. You rely on those other people. So how do you create trust and safety in collaborative workspaces? Oh gosh, there's a lot of pieces to that though. I think about solo entrepreneurs or I think about someone, you know, like myself, you know, I have a team, but they are all experts and I hired them for a really clear reason. So I think the first thing is even if you're working with contractors, so they're not your, you know, your typical 40 hour employee, if they are involved in your business, they are a team member and should be treated as a team member. They should be treated, um, they should be onboarded properly. They should have regular communication access to you. They should know the other contractors that are working within your organization and be able to work around them. So I think when you start to build safety with them, you know, the first thing I say to someone when I bring them in is I hired you because you're an expert in this. I know very little bit about it. So I expect that as we go through this relationship, you do fantastic work and you teach me along the way. And when they come to me and they're like, here's what I think we should do. I always say, tell me why, tell me the research, tell me, you know, why you're passionate about this. If this wasn't a possibility, what else could we do? And I ask questions to make them think really hard about what they're bringing to me because I don't know enough. I'm not an expert in it, Mm -hmm. but I can ask questions so that they're basically selling me. They're, they're teaching me and that pushes them, but it also allows them to know I trust them because I expect them to bring me their expertise. It's interesting because that can be true of of a team that you've formulated. It could be Mm -hmm. true of a client you work with. It really could be true in interpersonal relationships as well. What you're doing, it seems like, is you're threading the needle, Jennifer, between I hired you, you're the expert, go do your job. The other end of the spectrum might be something like, yeah, I hired you and you're the expert, you work for me. Mm -hmm. right? A very controlling environment. And so the needle thread is I hired you. You're the expert. I need you to instruct me just all the things that you said. They're just so wonderful. Yeah. And you have to, to build, to build safety, people have to know there's people around them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's what, eight, nine of us that, you know, work together at 304 and everyone else has their own business. I, I hire them as an expert. And every time I bring someone in, we have a group conversation. We invite them in. We talk about how we can support each other. We talk about what each person does. And 
it creates trust and safety for them because they feel like they're part of a greater cause and not just a contractor getting direction and an invoice that goes out because that doesn't feel good. So they're going to work really hard because they, they have purpose. But the other thing it does is it allows them to have other people to talk with and it allows them to, you know, have someone to go to and say, this is what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? And it makes my job easier because when my marketing, the person who does my marketing talks to my tech VA who does all of the technology behind our leadership academies, I don't have to get in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Because I've created trust within the team that they can talk to each other, they can make a decision, and then they just present it back to me. So not only am I creating a place where they get to be their best, I'm creating a place where I'm not overwhelmed, therefore I can be my best. The, the word that I use, and I think you used it as well, that I have been trying to move the people I coach away from, the people that are in my mastermind away from, the people, anybody I talk to mm-hmm. is transactional. Yes. We have to get away from a transactional existence where mm-hmm. to your point, I've hired you, you've given me a resume, I'm giving you a paycheck. That's of course the basic, right? That's the skeletal structure of hiring somebody, but you do the work to bring them on board. I can speak from experience. You and I, I've had the pleasure of working with your team over the last three weeks or so. We did a lovely discovery call to make sure this was a great fit. And here you are. About a week before, I got an email from your team saying, we're confirming, here's the information we talked about. Let us know if there's been any changes. So I felt like a very, very valued extension of your team. And that doesn't happen by accident. You have to be intentional about that. Yeah. And, you know, we have processes and processes create safety because people know what to expect and they know what to do. And so, you know, as a podcast guest, there's a lot of moving parts to that. And just like there's a lot of moving parts, if you have your own podcast or any anything that you do, there's moving parts. And Mm -hmm. so we have very clear process maps. And so I can go to bed knowing that every single Monday for the week after that, any podcast I may be on, they'll receive the email that you received. Mm hmm. And I, and I want my, I want people I work with to feel good. Like you, you knew I would show up today, right? Because we communicated with you and we created safety in our partnership with you because you knew I would show up and I'd be ready. But if we hadn't communicated, you hadn't heard from us, you'd probably be like, well, I hope she shows up, you know, like you might be having fear before this and we wouldn't want that. And what's ironic is you beat me to it. So a little bit later in that week, you would have normally gotten an email from me that said, you know, here's our shared drive. Please upload any materials you want. Here's a guide that I've created for all the ways that you can be the best guest. And I got your email from Jennifer, the other Jennifer. Yeah. And and I said, she doesn't need my email. She's mm-hmm. already sent me everything I need. I can load them to the drive. She obviously knows how to be the best podcast guest because of all the information she shared. So I love that that, that is so intentional on your part. Let me ask you and, and be honest, be candid, because okay. it, if you did it in advance, then you're of course the front runner and you're the mm-hmm. forward thinker. If you didn't, then we can learn from you. Did you start those processes as you developed a team? Did you start those processes the minute you started doing those things? Because so often I think people don't understand the value of creating a process if they're the only one in their business. I am a process person. And that came from my early upbringing. upbringing. I I grew up in the retail industry. My Mm -hmm. first jobs were running stores in the malls. Mm. And, you know, we had processes, everything had a standard operating procedure of, and everyone knew what to do. And so, you know, when we make it, when I make a decision, I always think about, cause I'm an operator at heart. How will this play out? You know, what's my end goal? 
And how do I get there? What do I want to deliver? And we're very process driven here, but it creates efficiencies. It creates safety. It creates trust. We sleep better at night, but yeah, I have a spreadsheet for most things, but, and I love a process map because here's the other thing. If as my business grows, you know, Jen, who's you've been communicating with, we have a succession plan for her, even though she's a, she is I guess on paper, a contractor, I have a succession plan for her. I know what her next step is in my business. Mm -hmm. She knows what that next step is. But when we bring in her replacement, a new admin, we have process maps. And so we can pass that off with really, you know, just an easy handoff versus like, oh, what? I mean, I just do it this way. I don't really know why Mm -hmm. all of that messiness, but we have a succession plan. I am a fellow process nerd. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Uh, It started in hospitality. I ran a department that had uh, corporate level SOPs that we got that were great, but they did not apply to the specific building and the the specific operation. So we created SOPs for our our offices. And I remember people sort of feeling like this seems like extra work. This doesn't make any sense right up until they got promoted. (laughs) And when, when they got promoted because of the wonderful work they did and they got to, to hand that to their successor and say, Hey, here's the deal. This is how you do these things. And if you have any questions, the handover and the turnover and the, the onboarding and the person's promotion was so seamless. Mm -hmm. Right. And it takes, it takes a great deal of forethought because you think, well, I'm just the one that does it. It's no big deal. The other thing that I want to touch on real quick before we move on, because I think it is so important and people don't understand this. When you do a process map, whether it be pen and paper or a process flow app, whatever the case is, you find holes in your system. And I'll tell you that being a podcast host, relaunching the podcast in a way that was much more methodical than when I originally launched the podcast, I created like a five page process workflow. And still, when I go back, I think, okay, now that I'm 10 episodes in or 15 episodes in, I should be doing this. I need to send this note earlier. It is remarkable how you can immediately improve upon a process just by having that map and looking at it and seeing where the holes are. You can. And it's also, you know, obviously it creates efficiencies and there's only so many hours a day one can work. And so you have to think about it as distribution of energy. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm putting a ton of energy into chasing what I didn't do right, then that is energy that I cannot use to create a new product or follow up with a client or write an article because I'm, you know, I'm so overwhelmed. And so, you know, when you think about, you only have so much energy to distribute, do you want to waste it because you're not organized and you don't have processes and you're not on top of efficiencies. And, you know, for the first year and a half, it was just me and I did it all top to bottom. And, you know, if I was sloppy with it, I would never be where I am because I wouldn't have had the energy left to create my academies and to create marketing and and all that other stuff that it takes to have a viable business. I think that that's the takeaway there that is so profound, Jennifer. It's that you put the capital time in up front when time was less of a constrained commodity so that you could save time and energy and delegate every single day from then on, right? It feels like such a heavy burden to stop whatever you're doing, look through a process map, figure out what your process is, and then write it down right up until you have 20 of those that maps out your entire existence. And then the minute somebody comes on, you're like, okay, here's how you do this. Now I can go do this and I can spend my time somewhere else. And as your time becomes more and more and more constrained, you just hand them off, 
recreate the process for the next person and move on to more valuable things. That is unbelievable tactical advice that every listener, I don't care if you're a business owner, I don't care if you're an entrepreneur, I don't even care if you work for a company. If you're a professional, hospitality professional especially, you could create those SOPs for yourself just so you know how very efficient you could be. Yeah. And you know, all that energy left over, you get to decide where you put it. And that's always fun. That's what I was literally about to say. And that's always the good stuff, right? When you realize you have just a little bit of extra energy left over, you get to decide what to do with that energy. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I have a lot of energy left, but we need to wrap up. And I wrap up every podcast in a super fun way and I don't tell my guests about it. And it's just a fun lightning round. Are you ready? I am ready. I love how definitive you are. Okay. So my daughter's favorite movie right now is Trolls 2 World Tour. So is it rock, pop, or country for you? Oh, rock, I would say. Yeah, she is. She does the cute little rock on symbols. And she said, Daddy, <laughs> are you ready to rock on? So thank you for loving rock. She absolutely adores rock. Vintage rock. And that's the thing is she literally says, Daddy, I want to listen to Crazy Train. And that's an Ozzy Osbourne song. So oh, I, I was a big Ozzy fan. Black Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you, there's, if there's one thing I like about pop culture for children is when they do it right, they introduce them to things that they would not have stumbled upon on their own. Okay. So since you're my neighbor here, favorite mm -hmm. Dallas based restaurant. Oh gosh, then that would probably be, okay. So our favorite place to hang out is in Bishop Arts here in Oak Cliff. Mm -hmm. And we hang out this fantastic pub, 10 Bells, and it is a true dive pub. It has great food and everyone knows your name when you walk in. I love dive pubs. It's where my wife and I went on our first date because we met at a really sort of high end watering hole. And both of us were like, that's not really where we hang. Can we go to this pub over here? So we went to Sherlock's pub. Ah, uh, Sherlock's, and that was, that's good. Yeah, that was one of our favorite spots. Okay, so since I know you go to the pub, favorite beverage? Ooh, let's see. I guess sparkling water. Mm -hmm. If it's, you know, past five o'clock, I love me some red wine. And right now it's my favorite time of year. It's getting a little crisp in the air, a nice glass of red wine at the end of the day to relax and warm up is, is my favorite thing too. Okay. Thank you for playing my lightning round. It's just a yeah. fun way. We've talked about so much sort of heavy, strategic and tactical. It's a great way to get to know you and have a little fun with the audience. So my next question is if people want to find you, I believe that I'm supposed to send them to 304coaching.com, correct? Yes, they can um, head over to 304 Coaching. We have a resource section, case studies, um, some directions on how to have some innovative meetings with your team and access to some of the podcasts I've been on. Exceptional. So that is the core hub of your universe, 304coaching.com. You did tell me right before we got started that you have a brand new resource there that people can download about how to create innovation in your team with some creative team meetings and such. Yes. Yes. It's called a crazy idea meeting and it is a way to jumpstart innovation. If your team has been in a place of a little bit of fear and they're not coming to you with new ideas, it's a very specific way to get them to start thinking about innovation by rewarding them for ridiculous ideas. I love everything about that. No, no idea is too crazy. Wonderful. Well, listen, Jennifer, you've been a pleasure to chat with. I know I've learned so much. I'm confident the audience learned so much. Thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your knowledge with us. Well, I thank you. And it's been great getting to know you. Thank you so much. All right. With that, we'll have Adam Wilmore take us out of here. Everybody have a great week. Thanks for listening to the People First and Profit podcast. If you like this episode, and I'm pretty sure you did, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends, fans, and followers wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the show notes for additional information about this week's guest, as well as a list of all the links and resources we discussed. Be sure to visit peoplefirstinprofit.com for a ton of great content, free resources, and links to the People First and Profit community. All right, I'm Adam Wilmore, and on behalf of your host, Don Mamoni, we'll see you next week. Thank you.